0: Happy New Year. It's good to see you. Hopefully you had a good New Year celebration, good holiday season. Uh, It's a new year, new decade, and a new millennium. Uh, So I wore a tie to commemorate that. might be only the first or second time I've ever worn a tie since we've been doing this, so (laughs) Happy New Year. I wore a tie. Um, How many of you are familiar with the name Jonathan Edwards? Not? Okay. How many of you are thinking of The John Edwards, who was the failed North Carolina politician. Okay, different different Jonathan Edwards. When I say Jonathan Edwards, I'm thinking early American, preacher, pastor, arguably the greatest thinker in the English language, short of John Owen. Um, Some things you may not know about Jonathan Edwards, uh, or maybe you do, and you just choose to forget them. Um, By the age of 29, maybe 28, somewhere in his late 20s, Edwards had already written 70 resolutions that he would read every single week for the rest of his life that would begin to help him shape his heart and guide the way that he would live. Did you know that? He wrote them down. They're called his resolutions. They start like this. I wanna read this to you for a second. The top of his list, Edwards wrote this. He said, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat God by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions So far as they are agreeable to his will for his name's sake. And then he went on to write 70 resolutions that he would read every week of his life to give shape to his heart, to give shape to his steps. And they sound something like this. This is just a few of them. I won't read all 70. Uh, Number five, this wasn't even the number one resolution. Number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way that I possibly can. Pretty good resolution. Number six, resolved to live with all of my might while I do live. Seven, resolved never to do anything which I I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number 25, I love this one. Resolved to examine carefully and constantly what the one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to direct all of my forces against it. Number 25. Number 43, resolved, never henceforward till I die to act as if I were any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. Those were some of his resolutions. How many of you made resolutions for the new year? How many of you are afraid to raise your hands now because I just read Edwards' resolutions. Yeah, exactly. There's honesty there. How many of you made resolutions and already broke your resolutions a few days into the new year? Yeah, more hands, yeah. Let me ask you this. How many of you, or did anyone, make any resolutions that sound something like resolved in 2010 to live a life less centered on myself? Not quite Edwards' Resolution, but did anyone resolve to live a life less centered on themselves, less sufficient in themselves, less dependent upon themselves? No? How about this one? Did anyone have anything that sounded remotely like resolved in 2010 to be less religious? Anybody have that one? Did anybody resolve this year to be less religious? Strange thing to ask. As we sit here, some of you are probably here because you made a resolution a few days ago to be resolved to be more religious this year. And for you, that meant coming here on Sunday morning. But here's my thing. I think if we were to make a resolution to start today, as if today was the start of the new year, if we were to make a resolution not just for this year, but for the days to come, that we would remind ourselves like Edwards did week in and week out, if we could make a resolution that sounded something like resolved by God's grace, as long as it's according to his will, To live less self-centered, less self-focused, and less religious, I think it would change us for the better. And one of the places, one of the areas, or one of the things that I think would be most impacted by this, and where that change would be most evident, and at the same time most necessary, is in our practice of of prayer. To be the people that God is calling us to be, to actually live a life less centered on ourselves, to live a life that's less religious in one sense, It will take the help and dependence upon God in prayer, but to live a life of prayer and dependence upon God means to deny our self-sufficiency. And so the two go hand in hand, and I think if we were to unpack this a little bit and talk about this a little bit more, I think we would see one of the places where this kind of resolution will show itself most clearly is in the way that we pray. So let me ask you this. How many of you who have... Being Christians for any period of time, be it a day, a week, a year, or 20 years, would say that although you know that prayer is to be a part of your life and that you're supposed to be a man or a woman of prayer, how many of you would actually have to say honestly that a deep and intimate life with God, the creator of the universe, the creator of all things that are, the sustainer of your life, a deep and meaningful relationship with him, on a consistent basis through prayer, has been really hard for you. Yeah, let me say that. You've, you've, you've most likely read the books. You've, you've listened to the sermons. Uh, you've found out all the different ways that you were supposed to pray, all the different techniques that you're supposed to employ to achieve this more deep and more meaningful and more intimate relationship with God. But in the end, instead of actually creating that, what it did was it enabled you and helped you to create a, a split personality. Do you ever feel that way? That you've created this prayer personality and that the real you has never really actually connected with God. That you've learned all the ways you're supposed to do it, all the things you're supposed to say, all the, the, the frameworks and the formulas for talking to him to such a degree that if you're honest with yourself, you get frustrated because you realize that that's not really you. It's actually talking to him. It's another person that you've created so you get frustrated and you have to wonder, did, did I really do it right? I mean, of you ever thought after you've prayed, was that really a good prayer? Was that really good enough? Should I, should I worship before I pray more? Did I actually do it right? Maybe I should talk less about myself and, and more about God, and then it will be a good prayer. But was this really a good prayer? Did it, did it actually work? See, here's my thing. I think you have a desire to pray. I don't doubt that. I think everyone in here has a desire to pray, and I think that comes from creation. I think it's natural, but we have a struggle with it, which comes from the fall. And so for the next few weeks, the start of this new year, I want us to talk about prayer. I want us to talk about the practice of prayer. I want us to talk about what prayer is, and I want to do that through looking at what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer or should be called more accurately the disciples' prayer, because it's actually a prayer that Jesus gave them to teach them, to enable them to ultimately, as we'll see, reshape their heart, reshape their soul. It's really the disciples' prayer. But I don't want to talk programmatically about prayer. Man, I don't want to sit up and develop a formula and a structure by which I want to send you out that you can sit down with God in your time and in your little place and in your 15 minutes and follow the formula and feel like maybe you've connected with God. I don't, I don't want to do that. Enough people have done that. Um, you've already got your prayer personalities and your prayer techniques and your prayer mantras and your prayer formulas. I don't want to talk formulaically about prayer. The Lord's Prayer was really never meant to be. That kind of thing. It was never meant to be a a mantra that we repeated over and over and over. And the irony will be when we look at the text, that's the very thing he criticizes us for. But it's the very thing we take his prayer and use it for, isn't it? Over and over and over and over and over again. Martin Luther, he said that the Lord's Prayer is the kind of prayer that you could pray a thousand times and learn something new about it each time. And the tragedy is that people do pray it thousands of times. But never realize the incredible things hidden within it. So I want us to take some time in the next few weeks to see it. I want us to take some time in the next few weeks not to make it a mantra, not to make it a formula, not to make it a technique, but to let it shape us, to let it change us by God's grace, to see something of what God is saying when he is teaching his disciples how to pray. You know, books, scores of books have been written about the Lord's Prayer. We can never exhaust all that's in it. But here's my hope that God will will show us something afresh in it. Maybe for the first time for you, maybe for the first time in a long time for you. And the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And there are probably few passages in the Bible more familiar to everybody across the board than this one. Everybody has probably heard this, prayed this. If you played sports in school, you prayed it before every game, whether you ever knew what you were saying or not. Everybody is unbelievably familiar with this. And while I don't think there's contempt that's been bred, I think we've assumed we know what he's talking about and we know what he's saying. And if we're really honest with ourselves, if we were to look at our prayer, if we were to look at our habit and our practice of prayer, if we were to look at our satisfaction and joy in prayer, we'd have to be honest and admit that maybe we don't know what he's saying. Maybe we missed it altogether. So here's my my contention as we go forward. Um, I don't think that you don't have a desire to pray. And I don't think that you don't know that you should pray. And I don't think that you don't really even know how to pray. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem with our understanding of prayer and our lack of joy and satisfaction in it is really a heart issue. I think our problem with prayer is really a heart issue. And I think it's a misunderstanding of the nature and the character of God And As we misunderstand who he is, I think we become a people who end up talking a lot about prayer, but never actually being a people of prayer. I think we get really good about talking about being a people of prayer, but really bad about actually praying and finding any lasting joy, satisfaction in God through prayer. So that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. We're going to look at the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, and we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to shape us, to change us, to help us understand who he is, that we would have a right understanding of him and through prayer, that our hearts would be rewired, our hearts would be restructured, our desires would be transformed, and we would begin to find a deep and lasting and intimate relationship with our Father that we'll talk about here in a minute. So let me pray, and we'll get going. Father, thank you again for this unbelievable opportunity uh, to come together with your people. Um, We ask, Lord, that you teach us how to pray. Teach us who you are. Transform our understanding of your character and your nature. Show us where we have misunderstood you and where we have held things against you that were not true. You know, and help us to be a people who recognize your love, who recognize your presence, who recognize your tenderness, who recognize your care, and who recognize your majesty, and may it compel us to come to you. Thank you that we can talk to you, that we can have a relationship with you because of Jesus. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, then you would change us. Let us not leave the same way. Day in and day out, begin to rewrite our hearts, begin to rewrite our desires for your glory, for your namesake. Amen. Here's the thing, self-sufficiency, moralism, religion, those things are a, a cancer that slowly and dramatically and drastically eat away at our soul and keep us from the intimacy and the depth of the relationship with God that all of us so desperately want. And to be the kind of people who have a relationship with God that's marked by intimacy, that's marked by joy, That's marked by depth. We're going to have to be a people of prayer. We're going to have to be a people who are dedicated to being less religious. Dedicated to losing our religion. Jesus' great teaching on prayer, the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, is square in the middle of one of his most devastating teachings on the dangers of religion on the dangers of moralism. It's one of the most subversive teachings in the Bible that we have recorded of Jesus that absolutely undoes everything that we think about how good we are, how great we are and how we're supposed to live. It's a teaching it's a teaching called the Sermon on the Mount that's actually aimed not at giving us rules that we're supposed to follow or ways that we're supposed to live, a checklist that we actually go down and say, "Okay, I know I'm okay." It's a teaching that's so subversive that it's aimed at creating a new culture. It's aimed at reshaping the people of God who no longer live under the, the old sense of, of righteousness whereby we had to earn favor before God, but under a new kingdom, a new king who has changed us and given us new desires. It's a teaching that's designed to create a culture where I'm not the center, where I'm not the center. It's a teaching that's aimed at, at helping us to live a life that is less self-centered, less religious, less religious more centered on who he is and what he has done. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Matthew. Let me, give you the, let me give you a great setup to where this prayer is and help you understand what he's doing and how. And hopefully it will make more sense once we know what he's talking about. So Matthew, it's not going to come up on the screen because it was too much, so we'll get there. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. We're going to read a little bit. I'm going to give you a a bit of a picture of what Jesus is doing. And maybe his teaching on prayer will will open up to us a little bit. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Matthew says, And when he, Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, and so his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So here it is, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. And what we have in the next two chapters is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus, this unbelievable sermon that absolutely subverts everything they understood about what it meant to be righteous before God absolutely undermines everything they thought about what it meant to, to be right in God's eyes. One of the most dangerous and one of the most subversive teachings in all of the Bible. He goes on to say Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, blessed are those who in the world's eyes have no reason to find joy and blessing. What you might think makes you blessed and gives you the life that you think you want right now, I'm going to tell you in my kingdom, it's different. Blessed are those who in this world look as to be the worst and the least of these. He goes on to unpack what these blessed people are marked by and I wish we had the time to go through it and we don't have the time to go through it this morning but he absolutely flips the script on their understanding of what it meant to be blessed by God and to live a life of righteousness and blessing. And he goes on to say, verses 13 through 16, that these blessed people are to be a salt people and a light people in the world, that the way that they live their life, this blessed life, this blessed character, this blessed community was to live in such a way that it reflected God's greatness and God's glory and began to transform the community around them. That they were to be a people of salt and a people of light. And I love this, verse, verse 16, Jesus says, in the same way, let your, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. These people were to be a people, a salt people and a light people who reflected God's character and God's glory. And he says, how will you reflect my glory to these people? How will they know who I am? It's by the way that you live your life and the way you go about doing the works that I've called you to do, the way that you do your good works. But how does one do good works, the right things, and not bring attention to themselves? don't miss this. This is what the rest of this sermon is going to be about and this is what he's absolutely going to hammer when it comes to prayer. And one of the things that I think we miss so often because we skip it. How do you do the good works that God has called you to do in such a way that he gets glory and not you? How do you do good works? What do they look like when they're not self-centered? When they're not self-interested? When they're not religious? From here, Jesus is going to go on and unpack through a, a series of case studies really some examples of what that looks like. We don't have time to go through all of them, but we tend to take these things and read these things and think that they're the, the letter of the law that defines every single situation, and they're not. They're actually just principles. Case studies of Jesus teaching on what a life lived centered not on self and not on religion actually looks like. Look, here, we'll look at the first one just so you get a sense. Look at this first one, verse 21. Anger. Anybody deal with anger? Anybody struggle with anger? Look at this right before that, Jesus said, "I'll tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. My goodness. My goodness. He just looked at all of his followers and said, "Unless your righteousness exceeds that of who have given themselves to be perfect, those who have memorized all of this, who, who have included extra laws so as to, to find themselves different than everybody else, unless your righteousness exceeds that of theirs, you're in trouble." And not Jesus is going to define, though, what the righteousness before him actually looks like. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be, able to, will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You know what Jesus just did? Jesus just said that anger and murder were not only the same thing, they were not only considered to be the same thing now in his kingdom through his righteousness, but anger and murder, do you know what's common about them both? And you'll see it in just a second. What's common? They're both terribly egocentric. They're both terribly self-centered. Do you know that? What is murder if it's not the endpoint of anger? I mean, what is murder if it's not anger gone unchecked? Anger that's lost any sense of consequence or any sense of fear. Murder is just anger lived out without any sense of, of consequences to come. And both murder and anger are unbelievably self-interested and egocentric. Why do you get angry? Why do you get frustrated? When someone has offended you or said something to you, why do you get angry? Why do you huff and turn around and walk away or call them a name? Is it not because they have not given you what you wanted? Did you want respect and they didn't give it to you? So all of a sudden they don't understand. All of a sudden you withhold your relationship from them. All of a sudden you call them something. Some kind of anger or frustration builds up in you because you didn't get what you wanted from them. Maybe you wanted affection from somebody and they didn't give you the affection that you wanted. So what do you do? You get huffy and you pull yourself away. Because you didn't get what you wanted, you got angry. Anger is unbelievably egocentric and self-centered. And murder is nothing but anger gone unchecked. And Jesus is far more interested, far more interested in the heart issue related to these things than in just keeping people from pulling the trigger and killing somebody else. He's after the heart. And what he's saying is that anger is just as bad because it's the same thing because it comes from the same foundation of egocentrism. Self-centeredness. You'll see it. Look what he has to say. Look how you see this. Look at the next verse and here's how you see this is the case. Look at the next verse 23. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while, you're going, while, you, while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge To the guard, and you'd be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty. Did you hear what he said in verse twenty-three? If you're offering your gift to the altar, and there remembers your brother has something against you, leave the gift there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother. Did you hear what he just said? It's not about you. It's not about you. If you realize that you have actually done something to offend someone else, what is your normal response? Well, now it's his problem. He needs to probably come to me and say something. I'll, I'll deal with it when he comes and, and tells me what's wrong. Jesus just said, no, no, no. You just found out that you offended somebody. It is on you to go and deal with it, not on him to come and talk to you about it. He just said, my righteousness, the life in this kingdom, what he, I'm about to unpack through all these things, it's not about you. You are not the center of this culture that we are creating unbelievable. Can you imagine a people or a community that were so decentered on themselves, yet so centered on who he was, that when you realize, not that someone has done something to you that has hurt you, and you go to them and say, hey, this hurt me, can we talk about it? But when you realize that you have done something to hurt someone else, that you stop what you're doing. You quit reading your Bible, you quit praying, you quit doing whatever it is you realize you're doing when you realize this, and you go to them to be reconciled for something that you know you did, that they never even mentioned. Can you imagine a people so radically decentered on themselves and so centered on the purposes of God and the glory of God and the relationships that He is creating amongst His people that they were to go and live this way? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Jesus, in this great sermon, this great teaching that I really wish we just had time to stop and go because I just really didn't even do that justice, is creating a culture, He's creating a people, He's creating a community. That is so radically decentered upon itself. And he's gonna take that culture and begin to shape it and shift it and teach it. The center of that culture is the gospel, is God, is Christ Himself. And so he does that as he goes through these issues like anger. He's going to do it when he goes through issues of lust and adultery, and, and he's going to use divorce, and he's going to use personal integrity and giving an oath. He's going to use retaliation. He's going to use loving your enemy. He's going to use the way that you give your offerings, the way that you give your alms, the way that you help the poor. How do you do these in such a way, these good works before God, that they're not centered on who you are, but they're radically de self centered? And radically centered on who he is. Uh, you have to imagine as he was, people were listening to this. And the disciples were listening to the sermon. And he had just said that your righteousness has to exceed that as the Pharisees. And he begins to tell what this righteousness looks like. You've got to be going, what in the world? How, how do we do this? How in the world do we live this way? How do we become this salt and this light people? And then he comes to one of the most offensive and most personal ways as he begins to teach on prayer. And he says this, verse five, now in chapter six. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room And shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now it's going to be fun. Jesus has just said, now when you pray, don't look at the religious people to figure out how to do it. Don't look at the Pharisees. Don't look at the hypocrites. See, these guys fought amongst themselves for this place of prominence in the synagogue where they could stand and read the scriptures or where they could stand and pray publicly in the synagogue. They would fight with each other for the prominence of that place and of that position. And it was even known of them at the time of, of Jesus, during the time of the, the Bible, that the Pharisees would actually time their travels. They would time their trips about town and the places they would go to be in the most public of places when the hours of prayer came. So that when the hours of prayer came, they had to observe them and they would be in the most public place so that they could be praying before the people. So they could be seen for their good works. They could be seen for their good deed and people can make much of them for their adherence to the law. And Jesus says, if you wanna learn how to pray, if you wanna know what prayer really is and if you want to really experience what God has for us in the communion with him through prayer, don't, don't look at the religious people. The religious people pray in such a way has to try to use God. His point here, don't miss this, his point here is that we have this unbelievably unique ability, this unbelievably unique sinful, I should say, ability to turn the worship of God into the worship of ourselves. We have this unbelievable sinful tendency to turn something like prayer and the worship of God and the communion with God into the worship of ourself. And we can take prayer and make it a means of building up ourselves in the eyes of, of other people. We can take something like prayer, as beautiful and as intimate as prayer is and the privilege that it is that we'll talk about in a minute, and we can take it and we can use it as an instrument to build up our image before other people or to use over people. See, Jesus was just centuries ahead of the atheist philosophers like Frederick Nietzsche who said that we should have nothing to do with religion, that religion was horrible, religion was dangerous because people used it to lord power over other people. And Jesus is saying exactly the same thing. Religious people take prayer and other things like prayer and use them as a means to gain power over other people or to gain status before other people. And he said religious prayer is gross. Religious prayer, as we'll see in a second, is hypocritical. Religious prayer is disgusting in the eyes of God. Let's take it out of prayer for a second because I don't think we have a lot of people jockeying in the service here to be the people who pray before the sermons or pray after the sermons. We don't actually have that kind of pattern here. And we don't actually adhere to these public prayers and hours of prayer where you can organize your travel so that you can stand in the streets when the time of prayer comes so and everybody can see you. But we do have things like prayer and things like repentance and other things that are part of our life before God that, if we're honest, sinfully we like to use to build up our reputation in front of other people or even worse we like to use to manipulate other people to do the very thing we think they should be doing. You don't do that, do you? No one in here is guilty of praying in front of somebody or confessing and repenting in front of somebody or reading their Bible in front of somebody or quoting scripture in front of somebody, not for the sheer joy and intimacy of the act itself, but for the sake of getting them to do what you think they should be doing. Nobody tries to manipulate or get control over other people that way in here, do they? None of you are guilty of that, huh? Jesus is saying, religious people, take prayer, intimate communication with God and use it as a way to bolster their ego, to bolster their reputation, and to get power over other people, to manipulate other people. And you know what he just did? You know what he's about to do when he started that, that, that teaching? Called you a hypocrite. Jesus just flat out called what you do in your religion hypocrisy. Don't miss it. Some of your translations say Pharisees. Some of your translations say religious rulers. Good translations say hypocrites. Those of us who tend to take prayer and tend to take our life before God, tend to take the the practices and habits that we have of communion with God and use them as a way to bolster up our ego or to gain manipulation or power over, over, over other people, Jesus says your religion, your faith is far from centered on who I am. It's hypocritical. And here's the thing we, we tend to t- think of hypocrites as people who live a double life right when we talk about hypocrites we talk about people who say I don't do this I don't do this and I don't do this while well, all along they secretly do it that's what we talk about when we say hypocrites it's not really what Jesus is after and that's not really what the word is, is meaning these people pray these religious leaders pray in fact they probably pray more than you or I do they're far more voracious at prayer than you or I probably are why is it hypocritical why, why is Jesus capable of calling these guys and their life before God hypocritical? A hypocritical faith before God, a religious hypocrisy before God is one who does all of the right things with absolutely no passion at all, with absolutely no zeal to know God more, but to only get from God or use God to attain some other means. That's hypocrisy in the eyes of Jesus. And for the most part, Jesus just called the majority of our religion out on the carpet. Because if we're really honest, and you've got to deal with this in your own heart, do you pray, when you pray, do you pray to get more of God or to get more from God or to use God as a means to get something over other people, to make yourself look a certain way? And take prayer out of it. Pick anything. Pick however you serve the Lord, whatever you do to connect with God. Do you, are you guilty of this? Now I wish, more than anything, that I could say that my heart was free from that. But it's not. It's not. The seeds of this hypocrisy go deeper than I, I care to ever imagine. I know the sinful temptation that exists in my heart. To do what I do for means other than the connection and relationship with God before simply the approval of other people. Or the capacity to get somebody to do what I think they should be doing all along, missing the vital connection and, and intimacy that is mine with God through that thing. Jesus says you want to learn to pray. You know what prayer looks like. Don't, don't look at the religious people. Don't look at the hypocrites. Don't look at the, the public use and the powerful use of religion to get something from God and to get over people. Don't look at them. They're not a good example. They're not a good model. You know what else Jesus just did? And this kid, this really hit me this past week when I was reading this. Jesus just called the majority of our religion and the majority of our practice out on the carpet for what it is. It's hypocrisy before him. And do you know what he just said that the real litmus test of our hypocrisy is? I mean, it's not the verses before. It's not anger. It's not lust. It's not keeping our integrity and giving our word. All the things that he went through in the sermon right before he got to prayer. Do you know what he just said? The litmus test of the the hypocrisy of our religion actually is? It's our personal prayer with Him. He said, the litmus test. how, How will you know whether your prayer, whether your life, whether your connection with God, whether your faith is hypocritical or not? What's your prayer like when nobody's around? What are the practices of your communion with God and your study of His Word and your submission to His Word, your practices of prayer, your memorization of the Bible, your time with God? What's it like when nobody else is around? What's it like when it doesn't gain you anything with anybody else? What's it like when you close the door and you go by yourself and nobody can know that you did it? Nobody's going to read their Bible anymore because you sat next to them and read your Bible out loud in front of them showing them what they need to be doing. Nobody's going to be repenting of their sin anymore because you didn't sit there and repent of something that was really quite foolish just because you were offended and you wanted them to repent to you. What's that like for you when no one's around? That's the test of your hypocrisy. That's a test, of the depth of your religion. That's a test, of the depth of your faith before God. Jesus just said, look, look at these religious people. It's foolishness going on and on and on. The thing that Jesus is criticizing here, the thing that he is subverting here, the thing that he is undercutting here that is so powerful in the religious people of his day and is so powerful in our heart is the motivation for why we go to him. Jesus is saying it's not so much that their practice was wrong. Nothing wrong with praying publicly. We pray publicly here all the time. We gather together in small groups and pray publicly. We gather together with our families at home. We pray out loud and pray publicly. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. He's criticizing their motivation for why they're doing what they're doing. The motivation is hypocritical. The motivation is self-serving and self-centered. The motivation is purely religious. And we need to be a people who are less self-centered. How do we resolve to be less religious. Jesus said, don't, don't go to them to learn this. Don't go to religious people to learn how to pray. But he's not done. He says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need even before you ask him. So here's the thing. Jesus just criticized the motivation for the way the religious people go to him in prayer. Now Jesus is going to criticize the basis for which the rest of the world feels like they're going to be heard by God. Jesus criticized the motivation. Now he's going to criticize the basis for which we think God will hear us. You see, here's the thing. Gentiles in some of your Bibles will actually say pagans. He's talking about everybody who isn't a Jew, everybody who isn't an Israelite. And what he's saying is they pray too. They pray too. Everybody else prays too, but here's what they do. When they pray, they actually come up with some kind of formula or some kind of mantra or some kind of chant. A lot of them would get together and say a lot of words over and over and over and over and over again. Or they'd pray fervently and fervently and fervently and more and more and more, thinking that the more that they did, God would actually approve of them and listen to them. You ever been guilty of that one? That if you just say it the right way, if you just get the right words down at the right time, in the right order, with the right emotion and the right inflection, then God will actually listen to you that if you just say it right, if you just get it right, well, maybe I wasn't emotional enough or maybe I wasn't sincere enough or maybe I didn't cry enough and, and maybe I didn't feel the right way enough and you know what? I said Jesus' name before I was actually done. Does that mean that the rest of the prayer didn't actually count because I said Jesus' name before? Or maybe I should say Jesus' name first because I shouldn't say it at the end or what do I do and what do I say and we figure out all these formulas and these mantras and if you've ever listened to corporate, public prayer in church, it's It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. By the time a third person prays, everybody's trying to sound like the first two people, and you've got this unbelievable language that begins to erupt that is so far from normal. We get into this pattern where we try to think that if we just say it right or do it right or say it enough, then God will listen. And what he's saying is the basis for which everybody feels like they're going to be accepted is wrong. These guys feel like they've got to do something to earn God's ear, to earn his approval, to earn his favor. Why? Because fundamentally in their heart, they didn't think he cared. They didn't really think the God's cared. They didn't really think they had an interest in what they were saying or in their life. So if they just did it right, just did it this way or just performed for them in this manner, then they would care, then they would listen and then they would answer. You're not guilty of feeling that way, are you? You're not guilty of feeling like your prayer is useless before God because you didn't say it right, are you? That there's this formula that you've got to have or God won't listen. There's this emotion you've got to conjure up or God won't listen. There are these words that you've got to repeat over and over and over again or God won't listen. And this is the reality with every other religion in the world. What they are doing is believing that in some way through what they do in their performance and their prayer, they can make themselves acceptable before God. While the Pharisees and the religious people made prayer about worshiping themselves and themselves the sinner everybody else, the pagans, the gentiles the rest of us struggle with making ourselves right before God through our prayer we feel like God won't listen to us until we make ourselves right before him and our basis to coming, coming to God in prayer is off our motivation can be off and our basis, our foundation can be off don't, please, please, please Don't fall into the trap. And if you're there because you know it when I say it, you feel it. Don't fall into the trap of feeling like you can earn your way towards God or find any acceptance or approval or God's ear by any particular way that you pray. That God is predisposed to listen to you when you say something in a certain way. When you get the right book that tells you the right thing to say, don't fall into the trap of feeling like that you can earn any ounce of God's acceptance. That's self-righteousness. And it's a pagan way to relate to God. It's really that simple. I mean, Jesus just said there's two ways that you can relate to God, two foundations for which you can come to God. A pagan way or a way that comes to God as our Father, a way that comes to him for who he is and what he has done. And you come one of two ways. You come as a pagan or a Gentile, feeling like you have to earn God's approval or you can come to God because of who he is. You can come to God with the right understanding of who he is as our father, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. As I thought about this, here's the really scary thing about the pagan way, the Gentile way of relating to God, of feeling like our prayers don't matter until we do them the right way because God is really indifferent after all, and we have to conjure up his ear and conjure up his approval. This only gets worse with time. The longer you're a Christian, the more susceptible you are to feeling like you have to do something to earn God's favor or earn God's approval because you begin reading your own press clippings, as our coaches used to say. You begin believing all the good things about yourself that you know that you do, and you begin to present those things before God as if they earn something for you before God. Scary thing is, this temptation only gets stronger the longer that we've been around the church, the longer that we've been around religion, the longer that we've actually been a Christian. So Jesus said, as we start, here we go. Don't listen to the religious people. Don't listen to the Pharisees. The place to learn about prayer is not the religious people. It's not religion. They seek a motivation that is not glorifying to God. They seek a motivation that exalts themselves and they seek a motivation that gains some kind of control or power over people and makes them look better. And don't look over here at everyone else and the rest of the religions and the Gentile and the pagan world because their foundation for prayer is all off. They think they have to do something to earn God's favor. They think they've got to conjure up God's ear before he'll actually listen. Don't don't listen to the religious people. They use God and they try to impress God. That's not what prayer is about. It's not about using him or trying to impress him. Jesus said this, verse 9. When you pray, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven. These few words form the foundation for our relationship with God, our life before God, the, the framework of our communion with God, they shape everything about how we relate to God and they will become the foundation for the rest of this prayer. And all of the petitions that we will look at week after week over the next few weeks are built upon this foundation, our Father in heaven. See, there's a reason why we don't pray like the religious people and we don't play like the, pray like the pagans or the Gentiles. There's a reason we don't pray like them and a reason Jesus says don't look at them is because their God is totally different than our God. We have an absolutely different God than the rest of the religions, and the reason why so many people, the reason why I and you and everyone in here struggle with prayer, is because our understanding of who God is is off. Because our understanding of who God is, as Jack Packer said, is muddled. It's not clear. It's not solidified in our hearts and our minds. And when our understanding of who God is is off, our motivation to go into him is off, and the basis that we feel like we can go to him and be heard is off. Our motivation gets skewed, and our foundation for certainty and assurance gets gets skewed when we don't know who he is and don't have a clear idea of who he is. And these first four words shape our soul, shape our heart, and define In essence, our relationship with God that begins to compel the way that we can interact with him, talk with him, commune with him, live with him. To be a people who in 2010 and for the years forward lose their religion, become a people who become less religious, less self-centered, we need to know who God is. We need to know who he is. Our souls are desperate for a sense of the character and the nature of God. And without knowing God as he is defined himself and as Jesus is talking about him here as our Father, especially knowing him as your Father, you will have a frustrating prayer life. You will have a frustrating Christian life of connection and communication with God. But when you do, when you begin to get a sense and a deeper sense and a growing sense of who God is to you as your Father, prayer becomes natural because you were made for it. It doesn't become easy, it becomes natural. It becomes instinctual. It becomes satisfying. It becomes joyful. But when your motivation is wrong and your grounds for certainty and assurance are wrong, prayer becomes work, it becomes drudgery and it becomes frustrating because how in the world can you ever know if it actually was good enough? You've got to work hard. You've got to discipline yourself. You've got to come up with the right thing to say if you never know if you're coming for the right reasons or on the right foundation. If you don't know who he is as father, prayer will be frustrating for you. The Christian life will be frustrating for you. But when you do, and the more you do, oh, the more joyful it becomes. The more satisfying it it becomes. It's really, it's that simple. You can pray. You can pray. And I think a lot of you do. Don't hear me saying you don't. I think a lot of you pray. And I think everyone who's sitting in here right now wants to pray. I don't think if you don't pray that you don't want to. I think everyone in here wants to pray. And for those of you that do, you can pray. But you have to ask yourself, do you go to God as your father? Do you go to God as your father? Or do you go to God as a pagan? Do you go to God as a Pharisee? Do you go to God trying to earn something from him before he'll listen? Or do you go to God trying to use him for something that you want? Or do you go to God as your father? That's what you've got to answer. That's what you have to come to grips with in your own heart. Jesus doesn't start this great prayer off by saying, Our creator. Although God is, He doesn't start this great prayer off saying, Our friend. Although scriptures, even in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, refer to God as our friend, He doesn't say that. He starts this prayer off in the most astounding and the most astonishing ways. And one of the things that you're going to have to come to grips with is, Are you astounded by this or not? Jesus starts this prayer off by saying, Our Father. Unbelievable. I mean, really, there's not much further that we have to go until you get this. Are you astounded and amazed? That you can actually come to God and say Father. That you can actually come to God and say Dad. I can't get a phone call with the mayor in this city. But Jesus just said that I can come to the God of the universe. The creator of all things that exist. The one who holds the rhythm and the breath of my very body in his hands. I can come to him and I can say Father. I can say Dad. I can approach him with a confidence and an intimacy that's almost, it's almost irreverent. It's almost irreverent. But I can approach him with a confidence. I, that, does that amaze you? Does that even astound you or does it become normal to you? Does it, has familiarity bred some level of boredom with the idea that you can come to the creator of the universe and call him Father see, to understand Christianity, to understand how it's different from religion, to understand what Jesus is after here, you have to understand God as your father. And to be a Christian is to understand that God has made a way through Jesus for you to relate to God in a different way, for you to relate to God as part of his family, to have the kinds of rights that children have in families, to understand Christianity, and to ultimately understand prayer, as we're talking about it, you have to understand who God is, and you have to understand how we relate to him. Because of that, you have to understand what we've talked about in the past as, as adoption, about how we're made a part of God's family. See, the funny thing about adoption is I thought about it a little bit this week, and we've preached on it in the past, and I won't take long on it this morning, because I thought about it a little bit this week. I thought, One thing I've never really paid attention to that seems it's obvious and maybe it's so obvious that I totally miss it in adoption is that adoption is never the work of the child. You ever actually thought about that? Adoption is actually never the work of the child. Adoption is always on the initiative of the parent. The parent always has the initiative in the process of adoption. And when adoption occurs... When a a, a family takes a child into their home, you know what actually changes? Behavior doesn't change immediately. Nature doesn't change immediately. Over time, those things will begin to change and take shape. But do you know what changes immediately when a family takes a child into their home? Status. Immediately, when a child is adopted into a family by the initiative of the parent, never the initiative of the child, the status of that child changes instantly. When you are adopted by God because of Jesus into his family, your status changes instantly. And at that very moment, you become a child of God with all the rights of being his son or his daughter. God says to you that you are his Period. You are part of his family, obedient or not. If my wife and I go through the process of adoption and we adopt a son or a daughter and bring them into our family, at that very moment, their status changes. From that point forward, they are greens, obedient or not. Their status has changed. They may still struggle with their behavior. They may still struggle with some of the things that their background has brought into their life and shaped them to that point, but they are greens nonetheless. And from that point forward, they have all the rights that come with being my child. My love, my protection, my provision, my care for them, my direction for them. And there's nothing that they can do to change that because they're my child as much as if they came out of Aaron's womb. That is adoption. And to rightly understand Christianity and to ultimately rightly understand prayer and connection with God, you're going to have to get it. You're going to have to understand that God has acted through Jesus to make us a part of his family. And with that adoption, we attain all the rights of being his children such to the degree that he loves us even as he's loved his son, Jesus. I don't know if that amazes you yet or not. Jesus, in his great prayer, John 17, unbelievable statement. Unbelievable statement. He prays for us. And you know what he says? It says, Father, I pray that you love them, what? Even... As you, as you have loved me. Jesus' great prayer for us to the Father is that we are loved on the same basis and to the same degree that the Father loves Jesus. We have been adopted into his family and to understand our faith, to understand Christianity and to understand prayer, you're gonna have to understand adoption and you're gonna have to understand and begin to believe and begin to trust that God is as committed to you as he is to Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? God is as committed to you as he is to Jesus. The issue involving our faith, and really the issue as we'll see involving prayer, is whether or not you believe this. Where is your heart in relation to this? Jesus' teaching is uprooting the wrong motivations and the wrong foundations for prayer, the religious hypocrisy that keep us from relating deeply to God because of who he is and what he has done. We have to be shaped by this idea that we are God's children, that we can come to him as our father. We have to be shaped by this. It takes, it takes time. It's a work. It's something that doesn't always just happen instantly. Over time, it becomes deeper. Over time, it becomes stronger. Over time, that sense becomes more real. But Jesus literally just shifted prayer, just shifted this communication with God away from this arena of religion, away from this idea of duty that we have to perform before God or this tool that we have to manipulate God. He's taken it out of the realm of religion, and he's placed it squarely into the realm of family, and that transforms how we engage him and how we understand communication with him totally. And we're not going to get the rest of the prayer until we progressively begin to understand this idea of God as our father. And one of the biggest hurdles, and it would be foolish to not deal with this, one of the biggest hurdles in doing this is the experience that many of us have had with our fathers on earth. And many of you listen to this, and you hear that God is your father, or you hear the rest of the scriptures, especially the New Testament, when Jesus calls God our father, and calls God his father, and teaches us to relate to God as our father. You hear this, and immediately your, your mind turns off. You, you flip some kind of switch in your heart and your mind, and you say, that, I can't understand that. I don't get that. My dad left. My dad hurt me. My dad abused me. My dad neglected me. My dad didn't listen to me. My dad didn't love me. And there's story after story that go on and on that have shaped the way that you understand who God is. And And listen to me, dads, future dads in here, you will affect and shape the way that your children understand God as their father. You will shape the way that your kids understand who God is as our father. You will either honor this office that you share with God or you will dishonor it. Your kids will either grow to learn that God is their father and they will run to him because of how they understand who he is because of that or they will run away from him in disgust. You have an unbelievable responsibility in this, but, but listen to me. Those of you who hear this and say, I just can't get it. I don't understand it. I reject it. I have a hard time believing that he loves me this way. This sounds simple, and by no means is it meant to be simple, but it's the truth. Your heavenly father was never meant to be judged by your earthly father. We tend to do that. We tend to take our dads, who our earthly dads, who, whose responsibility it is in some way to mirror the character of God as our Father, and we tend to take their failures, take their shortcomings, and project them onto our Heavenly Father and begin to judge God based on the performance and the life of our earthly Father when that was never meant to be the case. Our Heavenly Father, the one we were wired to know, to be satisfied by, to love and to enjoy, is the one who is to reflect back on our earthly Father. We are to see our earthly fathers in light of our Heavenly Father. And the more that we understand God to be who He is as our Father, the more that we can understand The shortcomings that our earthly father have had. The more that we can understand the shortcomings of our earthly father, the greater we can see the perfection and the sufficiency of our heavenly father. But never are we to project back onto God a judgment based on the way our fathers have treated us on earth. And I know that sounds simple. I know it sounds simple and it's not simple. And I don't mean it to sound simple. But that's the way this is ordered. God was never meant to be judged by our earthly fathers. But we as fathers are meant to be judged by our heavenly father. Long and short of it, I'll say it this way: the scriptures, the Bible, depict God as an unbelievable dad. They depict Him as an unbelievable father, and your dad may have your dad may have been a jerk. I mean, no other way to say it. Your dad may have abandoned you. Scriptures say that God is even a father to the fatherless. Your dad may have been a jerk. He may have treated you poorly. He may have not loved you. He may have neglected you. The frank reality is he has ruined the title that he shares with God. He's ruined the title of father and he's ruined the title of dad. And one of my aims as a dad and one of your aims as fathers in here is to not dishonor that title. Don't dishonor the title of dad. You need to treat your kids, dads, in a way that they begin to learn what it means for God to be our father. You need to treat your kids in such a way that they understand that they're loved, they're cared for, they're listened to, that they're important, and that they can have confidence when they come to God as their father and not run from him in some kind of rejection. They need to get that their dad loves them. They need to get that their dad listens to them. The worst thing that you can do as a dad is dishonor that title. The worst thing that you can do as a dad is dishonor the office that you have and the title that you have of father. That's the worst thing you can do is to give your kids the wrong idea of what it means for God to be their father. So Jesus says, when you pray, when you pray, you're talking to your dad. When you pray, you come to him as dad. You come to him as father. And as a dad, the the last thing in the world that I want for my kids, I mean, this has been so hard for me this week as I've thought about it and, and seen where I've been in this process, but the last thing that I want for my kids is to ever feel like they have to know some kind of secret code or assess my mood in a particular way or, or approach me in some way as to earn my ear, to earn my favor, or if they don't come to me in the right way that I'm not going to listen, that I'm going to reject them, that I'm going to set them aside for something more important at the moment. There's nothing more important to me at the moment than my kids. And I never want my kids to have to feel like they are less than something of the most important and crucial matter to me at any given time. I want my kids to know that I care. I want them to know that I love them. And I never want them to feel like I won't listen to them unless they come to me in some particular way. Because as soon as that happens in their hearts, as soon as they feel like they have to approach me a certain way or I won't listen. If they don't say the right thing or do the right thing, I'll set them aside for the moment. As soon as they feel like that, do you know what happens? Real, honest, authentic communication is done. It's done. I have just taught my child that he has to manipulate me or evaluate me in some way before he can actually talk to me. Before I can actually listen to him. Before I'll actually care about him. That's the last thing in the world that I want for my kids and my son has taught me so much about this in the past week as I was praying about this text and thinking about it and, and looking at my own reflection of God as a father in the life of my own kids. And I've listened and I've been amazed at the confidence and the boldness that my son has to come up to me. I think I've seen it completely different this past week. My son begins every request that he has of me throughout a given day. And if you've ever been around our house, you know that that's probably 10,000 requests. He never stops talking and he never stops asking. That's an unbelievable thing unbelievable thing a thousand times a day my son with absolute boldness and confidence can run up to me in the midst of anything and he'll say dad can you dad can we dad is this dad 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 he does this because he comes to me not feeling like he has to earn anything from me but he comes to me out of this unbelievably relational confidence that he has in me because i'm his dad and he feels like he can come up to me without any kind of barrier or hindrance and ask anything of me And you know what i'll do anything for him within reason anything I will do for him within reason. I'm his dad. I feel like I know what's best for him. And I will do anything that he asks of me within reason. And for some of you, that probably frustrates you because you know that we've been talking maybe on Sunday after church. And my kid comes barreling through the crowd. And he has this unbelievable confidence that he can just run up to me in the midst of any circumstance and get my attention and get my ear. And you probably get frustrated because I give it to him. And I will always give it to him. None of you is more important than he is. None of you. When he comes to me, he has an unbelievable confidence and boldness because I'm his dad and I never want that to go away. That's the kind of confidence that we're supposed to have and relationship we're supposed to have with God when we come to him in prayer. He's our dad, he's our father. He cares. He's not distant, he's not set apart, he's not indifferent. He's our dad. He loves us, he cares for us, he protects us, he provides for us. He is the one that we can come to with a confidence and a boldness that's so intimate, it's almost irreverent. And if any of you were to approach me in conversation the way my son does, it would be rude. But he can do that because he's my son. And I'm his dad. And Jesus is starting this great subversive and powerful and dangerous teaching on prayer with this foundation that the rest of us is built on. We've got to get to the place where we can come to God as dad. Prayer is very simply talking to our dad. And he's not just our dad who is here and who loves us and who provides for us and who's personal and who's intimate and who's engaged in our everyday life. He's our father who's also in heaven, Jesus said. Those two things are the foundation for which our relationship with God, our faith in Christianity, and our prayer is built on. He is our dad who loves, who provides, who cares. And he is our dad who sits in heaven, who rules over all things. He is in heaven ruling over all of creation, all of time, and all of people. Everything and everyone is under the authority of our dad. And if you think about it that way, That he is our dad who is intimately involved with our life, who cares about every detail of our life, who wants to provide for our life. Jesus will go on to say later in Matthew that he is such a good dad. What good dad would give their kid bad things? Our Father in heaven gives us what we need. He loves us. He provides for us. He's our dad. And he rules over everything. If you think about that, how silly is the notion of why pray then? The other thing, That keeps you from praying. Well, why pray? If he sits in heaven and rules over all things. If your dad controlled everything, if your dad ruled over all things, and if your dad lived his life to give you what you needed and what was best for you, and he loved you and you knew it, and he could do anything, would it stop you from asking? Would it stop you from going to him and relating to him? It's a foolish question to say, why pray if God is in heaven ruling over all things? It's because it's our dad. And he rules over all things. That's why we pray. We can have confidence because he's God. Foolish question. Silly question. Why pray because he's in heaven? Why pray because he's our dad? And he sits in heaven and he rules over all things. And as this becomes the foundation of our understanding of who God is, and fundamentally, as we understand our faith as one of being adopted into God's family, being able to relate to God as our Father, that will absolutely transform the way that we understand what it means to be His, what it means to live the life He has called us to live, how to do our good works in front of people, that He gets glory, that we don't get glory. And that relationship begins to grow, and it begins to shape the way that we can interact with Him. Because He's our dad, and we can talk with Him can come to him we don't have to earn his favor or do a silly dog and pony show before he'll listen to us we don't have to use our dad to get advantages over people he's our dad we can come to him and we can talk to him and that'll begin to shape the way we understand who we are and this is one of the most scandalous and offensive things to the rest of religion in the world no other religion has a god like this and this is a dividing line no other religion has a god that you can approach as father who cares, who loves, who's involved, who provides. But that's our God. And if you get this, as you get this, as we get this, as we begin to trust this more and more, as he begins to define our understanding of being our dad, as he begins to cast the shadow over our lives here, as he begins to become our reference point for relating to him as our father, and as we begin to see him as our father who cares and is involved and who rules over all of creation, as we get this, you'll pray. I have utmost confidence because I've seen it in my own life and in my own heart. As you get this, that prayer is not some religious activity that we do or use to manipulate people, and it's not something that we do to get God's attention to earn our righteousness or favor before him. There's no particular way that we have to do it. It's conversation with our dad, and he loves us. And as we get him as our father, and we understand what it means to be his child, I have utmost confidence that you'll pray. Because prayer happens for those who know God as dad. Prayer happens for those who know God as father. All the insecurities All the formulas, all the mantras, all the books, all the jabezes and all those things. They get seen for what they are. The hollowness, the emptiness, the religiosity, the self-centeredness. Get seen for what it is. All the insecurity will go away. The fear will go away. You can talk to him anytime, anywhere about anything because God's our dad, and he's there, and he listens, and he cares. And As we understand this, and this becomes the ground for which we understand how we pray and communicate with him, it will revolutionize not only our faith, but our conversation with God. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we can talk to you. And I thank you that we can just come. And we don't have to use fancy words. We don't have to use a lot of words. Thank you that you care. You listen, and then we can come to you. Jesus, I I ask, I ask that what you have done for us, how you have substituted yourself for us and made it possible for us to be adopted as your brother and your sister into your family, I pray that you make that real to us. And I pray that you help us see God as our father the way he is your father. Help us to recognize what it means to be his son or his daughter and help us to understand what it means to have confidence and boldness to be able to come into your presence to the throne of grace that we can come almost almost irreverently because it's so intimate that you listen and that you care transform our understanding of prayer transform our understanding of what it means to commune with you and relate to you that we might be a people who in this year and for years to come are less religious less self-centered more centered on you and more centered on the gospel, less driven by performance and need than by grace and your sufficiency. That's what we want. And so we ask this week and the weeks to come that you do that work in shaping our hearts for your namesake and for your glory, that you will be made much of. Amen.